Today's Old Testament lesson is found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as a fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Es waren aber fromme Juden aus allen Völkern unter dem Himmel, die in Jerusalem wohnten, und an diesem Ton versammelte sich die Volksmenge und war verwirrt, weil jeder sie in der Muttersprache eines jeden Reden hörte. Zij begrepen er niets van. Dat zijn toch mannen uit Galilea, riepen zij verbaasd uit. Hoe kan het dan dat zij onze taal spreken en nog andere talen ook? Kijk eens waar wij overal vandaan komen. Uit Parthië, Medië, Elam en Mesopotamië. Uit Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Azië. Phrygia en Pamphylia, uit Egypte en de streek van Serine in Libië. Er zijn hier Joden en Joodsen bekeerlingen uit Rome, Kreten en Arabië. Hoe bestaat het dat ieder van ons in zijn eigen taal hoort spreken over de geweldige dingen die God gedaan heeft? Zij waren buiten zichzelf en wisten niet wat zij ervan moesten denken. Zij zeiden tegen elkaar, wat heeft dit toch te betekenen? Die mensen hebben vast te veel zoete wijn gedronken. Lachten sommigen schampen. Entonces Pedro, poniéndose en pie con los once, alzó la voz y les habló diciendo, Varones judíos y todos los que habitáis en Jerusalén, esto os sé notorio, y oíd mis palabras, porque estos no están ebrios como vosotros suponéis, puesto que es la hora tercera del día. Mas esto esto dicho por el profeta Joel, y en los posteriores días dice Dios, Demarme de mi espíritu sobre toda carne, y vuestros hijos y vuestras hijas profetizarán. Vuestros jóvenes verán visiones, y vuestros anaciones sonarán sueños. Oui, ser mi servidor, como ser mi servant, se repentiré de mon esprit, En ce jour-là, ils prophétiseront. Je ferai des miracles et l'eau dans le ciel et d'ici bas sur terre, de signes prodigieux du sang, du feu et des colons de fumée. Et le soleil s'obscurcira, la lune deviendra de sang avant la venue du jour du Seigneur, ce jour grand et glorieux. Alors seront sauvés tous ceux qui invoqueront le Seigneur. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, many thanks to our scripture readers in different languages this morning for reenacting the experience of Pentecost in, in several languages. To each of them, we give our thanks. Toy, thank you so much for the marvelous children's sermon that reminds us today of the birthday of the church. And Casey, for your lamenting prayer that really has given voice to all of our emotions and feelings. We long for the day uh, when we will be together in person in worship again, and we're working through that and hope to make an announcement in the near days to come. 
Uh, until then, let me say again, we feel your presence with us. Uh, when we look into the camera, uh, we feel your presence with us. We sense your prayers. We sense your encouragement. And we sense our togetherness in this communion of worship uh, for which we're grateful through technology to Jeff uh, Wood, to our praise team, and all who have uh, helped us to, to sense the presence of God here this morning. It is a deep joy to be with you. We interrupt this series this morning on the fruit of the Spirit to mark what I think is one of the most important days in the life of the church. In our lineage, in our faith tradition, we essentially observe three high and holy days. Christmas, the birth of Christ, Easter, the death and resurrection of Christ, and finally Pentecost, the birthday of the church. Now, I for one think it's especially fitting today in, in the middle of a series on fruit to pause for a few moments and ponder the source of our fruit, which is none other than the presence, power, and person of the Holy Spirit. By the way, it is a wonder that this is also the most neglected person in our Trinitarian understanding of God. God the Father, we get. God is parent, we get. God the Son, incarnate in flesh, we understand. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it seems sometimes a little nebulous, a little vague, and certainly is prone to abuse. And so I think it helps to remember the role and function and work of each person in the Trinity. The work of the Father is creation. The work of the Son is redemption and mediation. And the work of the Holy Spirit is consecration and sanctification, sustaining our faith even in difficult times. Pentecost was one of three Jewish festivals within Judaism. In fact, Pentecost occurred 50 days after Passover. All of us remember Passover, the defining event in the history of Israel, which commemorates the exodus or what we would call the deliverance of the Hebrew slaves from Egyptian bondage through the Red Sea. Pentecost celebrated 50 days after that the first fruits of the wheat harvest. So it was an agricultural festival, but it was also a religious celebration which celebrated the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. This, I think, explains the crowd that was in Jerusalem according to Acts 2. Verse 5 says, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven. In fact, our readers mentioned no less than 15 different tribes, 15 different nations that are given honorable mention. There was also in Jerusalem that day a tiny sect, a tiny band of Galilean Jews. Luke recalls the exact number, 120. He was always counting attendance. Seven weeks earlier they had seen their rabbi falsely charged, interrogated, tortured, and crucified. They had believed him to be the Messiah. In fact, they had given up everything in order to follow him. Rumor in town was that perhaps Jesus had been raised from the dead, but something happened between Passover and Pentecost 
that changed everything. Jesus, according to Luke, appeared to this tiny band over a period of 40 days and instructed them specifically not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, if I'd been one of the 12 or one of the 120, personally, I would have preferred to wait in Galilee. It would have been safer. Things were risky in Jerusalem, and the truth is every one of them feared the same thing that happened to Jesus might happen to them, and except for one of the apostles, it did. But Jesus said, I want you to stay right where you are, right in the midst of the trouble. I want you to wait in the city, and I'm going to give you power to be my witness. The notion of waiting reminds us that the strength that we need the most doesn't come from within us. It comes to us from the hand of God. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, Jesus kept his promise. While they were all together in one place praying, the wind and fire fell from heaven and ignited that tiny grieving band to go public with their faith. The first miracle of the Spirit on that day was the miracle of speech. Paul says later to the Romans, faith comes by hearing. And Acts 2.4 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. What does that mean? Well, this is not the gift of tongues. As Paul talked about in all of his epistles, that's called glossolalia. That's incoherent, inarticulate speech that required an interpreter to be understood. It's not that. It's called xenolalia. That is, Luke says, they actually were speaking in languages that they had not previously known. So get this. In Jerusalem, this diverse, multicultural, multilingual crowd hears them speaking in their own vernacular, in their own idiom. And Luke recalls, verse 6, the crowd was bewildered, you think? The word in Greek means they were, they were blown out of their senses. They, they were astonished. They were amazed, amazed not just by what they heard, but by who they heard. Verse 7 says, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And when I read that, that begs the question, how did they know they were Galileans? Well, the same way we can tell a northerner from a southerner. The same way you can tell a Brit from an Aussie, it's in the dialect. In fact, I don't have to tell you, those of you who are native Middle Tennesseans know the way to distinguish a native Tennessean from a non-native. It's the way you say the town Shelbyville. If you say Shelbyville, you're not from here. If you say Shebaville, you're a dead giveaway. The same with Maury County. It's spelled phonetically Maury, but of course we pronounce it Murray County. 
I've been working on my wife for seven years, not to say Mont Eagle, the T is silent for a Middle Tennessean, it's Mont Eagle. When we lived in Atlanta, you could tell a native from a newcomer by the way we said Marietta. True natives know it's really Marietta. In fact, in one of our churches, we had a senior adult named Francis Beckemeyer, who was an archivist who could distinguish to the county where you were from by the sound of your voice. Now, what you may not see in this text, if you don't read between the lines, is there is some implicit prejudice in this text at this point. Judeans, frankly, looked down their nose on Galileans. They thought of Galileans as country cousins or country bumpkins. They considered those from Galilee up north more lax in regard to the law, more Greek in their culture than Jewish, uncouth, uncultured, uncivilized, backwoods. They considered them not to be the sharpest pencils in the box. Jesus himself experienced prejudice. You can see it in John chapter 1. You hear it in the voice of one who became one of the twelve, Nathanael. When Philip told Nathanael, I have met the Messiah in Jesus of Nazareth, you remember what Nathanael said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What was he doing? He was profiling. He was discriminating. He'd never even met Jesus. But if he's from Nazareth, he's dissing him because of his place of origin. And what you see, if you read between the lines, you see a form of racism, even by one of the twelve, towards Jesus. And God forgive us, we still do it. Our hearts are so heavy today, it's beyond words. The news in these recent days from Georgia, from Kentucky, from Minnesota, unbelievable, unfathomable. We have a knack, don't we, because of our fallen nature for exploiting our differences rather than appreciating our similarities. And we do it in every conceivable way. God forgive us, we do it racially, we do it ethnically, we do it economically, we do it linguistically, we do it regionally, we do it geographically, we do it denominationally, we do it politically, and we even do it theologically. (laughs) And when we do, we spit in the face of God who knit us together in our mother's wombs. And we cheapen life to the point where it seems to be disposable, like a dirty diaper, like an empty milk container. And the result is bitter fruit. I said last week in my message on kindness that there is an epidemic, a pandemic that is worse than bitterness. I think today there's a condition that's more lethal than COVID-19. 
and it's racism. It's bigotry. And it's not new. It's part of our fallen nature. In fact, do you remember that in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia that he addressed that too? Do you remember that there was a struggle between Jews and Gentiles in the church of Galatia? And Paul got so tired of it that he wrote to them in no uncertain terms. Listen, friends, in Jesus Christ, if you are baptized in Christ, there is no ethnicity. There is no Greek nor Jew. There isn't anything such as status. There's no slave nor free. There isn't even any gender. There's no male nor female. But in Christ Jesus, you are one in the Spirit of God. There's a reason that we make a promise at the time of our baptism or that is made for us at the time of our baptism. Right after we repent of our sin and right before we confess Jesus as Lord, the question that we ask is this, do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? And we said yes. We made a promise to God. And God expects us to keep our promises. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In Acts 4, you see something similar. Peter and John, you remember at the temple gate, there was a lame man on the outskirts of the temple. He couldn't even get in. And they healed him in Jesus' name. And right after the healing, there was such a ruckus that the religious authorities roughed them up, cuffed them, and brought them into the council. And verse 13 is one of my life verses, Acts 4. But when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were ordinary, unschooled, uneducated Galileans, they were bewildered, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. You can tell it, can't you? When somebody's been with Jesus. And you can tell it when we haven't. They heard these Galileans speaking the wonders of God in their own native tongue. And they were amazed. And so are we. I think what's happening in Acts 2 is the exact antithesis of what happened in Genesis 11. You remember that story? The Tower of Babel, when the world was still young and the people still spoke one language, they all got together in an eastern plain called Shinar, and they began building a structure whose top would reach into the heavens in order that they might make a name for themselves. And when God saw their pride and arrogance, you remember, he came down, he confused the language, and there arose a communication gap that sounded to all the world like grown children babbling or like Congress in session or maybe like a general conference, incoherent, incomprehensible, everybody talking, nobody listening. But on the day of Pentecost, the language 
became one again, and everybody heard and understood in their own dialect. I think it was J.I. Packer, the great reformer, who said, we complain sometimes that preachers don't know how to preach. I think he said it is equally true that our congregations don't always know how to hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the gospel. The biggest shocker to me about Pentecost was the one who preached. It was Peter. The same guy who 50 days before denied any and all association with Jesus in front of a maidservant at night. Seven weeks later, he stands before this vast multicultural crowd and proclaims the same one he denied as Lord and Christ. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the one least likely to make a preacher makes a preacher? Something got a hold of Peter or someone. And it was evident that day that that man had been with Jesus. He's the biggest miracle of Pentecost. And what a sermon, my Lord. He started with a text from Joel, who was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, who wrote after the exile, after the rebuilding of the temple. And using that as his text is a springboard into what is happening at Pentecost in Jerusalem. There's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In all of that grief, in all of that loss between Passover and Pentecost, the Spirit is there. And he uses Joel, and then he quotes two Psalms, and then he does what any gospel preacher worth his weight, her weight, should do. He pointed everybody in the crowd to Jesus, the Galilean, who was anointed by God, he said, with signs and wonders, whom you crucified. What a gutsy sermon. But death couldn't hold him. And God raised him up. Of this, said this denying preacher, we are all witnesses. And don't you know when Peter was preaching, he must have shifted the pronoun, this Christ whom I have crucified has been raised up. Well, you know the response. Some sneered. Some dismissed what they heard. They said, he's high. He must be high. He's drunk. They said the same thing, by the way, of Jesus. They said, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Isn't it interesting how we can dismiss someone when we don't want to hear it? He's under the influence, they said. And that was true. Peter was under the influence, but not of spirits, of the Spirit. And though many sneered and rejected Luke, again, who's always counting attendance, says that little country church became a megachurch that day. There were 3,000 people who were cut to the heart. What does that mean? It means they were convicted. And conviction leads to action. And hearing leads to doing 
what must we do, they asked Peter. And he told them, repent. Do a 180. Change lanes. The life you've been living, it's not working for you. It's not working for God. Do a U-turn and be baptized in the name of Christ so that you will know that your sins are forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 of them did. We remember all of that, but oftentimes we forget verse 39, Acts 2. I think it's so important. Peter looks at the crowd and says, for this promise is for you. It's for your kids. It's for your grandkids and for all who are far away. Hear that? For all who are streaming, for all who are feeling lost and lonely and least, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a key line in the book of Acts because the rest of the book showcases the gospel message that extends to people who are far away, a lame man on the outskirts of the temple, an Ethiopian eunuch who wasn't even allowed in the temple, (laughs) a Roman centurion with blood on his hands, a persecutor of the church named Saul, a Philippian jailer, a slave girl who was once a fortune teller, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, even Cretans and Arabs, those who are far away will be saved. Maybe that's you this morning. You're at home. Some of you are at home alone. You're watching from home with another person perhaps, but if, if, you're, if you're truthful, you're feeling so far from God today. I've got good news for you. Even on your worst day, when you feel far from Jesus, he is very near to you. He is closer than a brother. He knows the count of the number of hairs on your head. He knows the day you were conceived He has a purpose for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise that that tiny sect received at Pentecost, it's for you. It's for me. It's for my children. It's for your children. It's for all of God's children. And especially those who are feeling far away. Last word. I got an email recently from one of our online worshipers. He confessed he's been disconnected from the church, from the body. He's been away from the fellowship for a time. And he said, I I kind of blamed the church for my absence. And I said, I understand. He had fallen out some years before And then on one Sunday in April, he tuned in online and he began to mouth the songs and he felt the prayer 
and he heard the gospel. I realized, he said, how far I had drifted from my faith, but on that morning, it was like somebody plugged me into the source of power, and all of a sudden, I saw things differently. It was like being reconnected. I look forward, he says, to coming back in person worship when the time comes, but until that moment, you need to know that one man in your flock who was far away has come near to Christ. He's a witness, and so are you. The greatest miracle of the Spirit is not a particular gift or even a specific fruit. It's you. You are a sign and a wonder to God. And when you walk by the Spirit, truthfully, others will think you're a little nuts, but others will be amazed, and they will know that you have been with Jesus because it shows you can see it, and you will become fluent in gospel for the reconciliation of the world to the glory of God. May it be so today in you, in me, in Jesus' name. Amen.